Well, that's a wonderful hymn, but it does have one error in it, and it's important we just note it. Uh, Third verse, second line, as they offered gifts most rare at thy cradle, rude and bare. Now, it was later on, considerably later on, when the Magi, the wise men, came to Jesus. Uh, And we have one or two indications of that um, in the narrative. One is that they came to him in in a house. No longer is he in Bethlehem in a stable. And the other is the very word that's used to describe Jesus. It's a different word in the Greek, um, which is faithfully translated here, Uh, and consistently as young child. No one knows exactly how old Jesus was, but clearly it's now into weeks or even some months after the birth of Christ, which is described in the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 1. But I want to move really to the latter uh, part of this chapter uh, as we consider God's protection of his son, of the infant Jesus. And I particularly want to focus on verse 15, uh, that quotation from the prophecy of Hosea that we read together. Uh, He was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. I'm not going to go into probably what is very familiar territory in terms of the actual history of what happened in this chapter, except to just draw your attention again to the fact that Joseph was divinely warned and was told where to go with uh, his little family, where to go to escape the soldiers of Herod. Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, And stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And so we have here God's unexpected protection. Unexpected in in the sense that he is being sent down into Egypt, this baby Jesus. But Egypt was even in the days in which the Gospels were written. And in fact, long before that, it was a place for Israelite refugees. In fact, there were large Jewish communities in Egypt, in places like Alexandra, for example. And there was a a tremendously famous library in the ancient world in Alexandra, which sadly got completely destroyed by fire. But that is there in uh, documents relating to this time. And even back in the days of Jeremiah, Egypt could be a place of refuge of refuge for Israelite people seeking to escape dangers from the north. Certainly in the days of the uh, Holy Family here, uh, Egypt was a place outside of Herod's, Herod's grip, outside of his immediate influence. And there was Jewish communities, Jewish synagogues, and a place of relative safety. And it was God's Provision, of course, for the protection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they had provision, indeed, in terms of the gifts that were presented to Jesus. Uh, As it says in verse 11, 
uh, when the wise men had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that would be incredibly helpful to the family then at that time. And historically, of course, uh, in church history, God has often protected his people uh, by giving them places they could flee to outside their own country. One thinks of places like Amsterdam and Geneva in the time of the Reformation. One thinks of certain areas of New England in the time of the Puritan era, places where they could go and be safe. And it's not, and we have indeed the example of Jesus here, although he was still an infant, uh, it's not wrong, it's not always wrong to escape persecution. Um, It's people who blow up their lives, who blow themselves up uh, in the name of God, who are fanatics. Um, But... uh, But here we have an example of even the Savior himself through the family, through Mary and Joseph, uh, escaping persecution. And indeed there is here in Matthew's Gospel in uh, in chapter 10, verse 23, there's even this injunction, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. Yes, we know that there are Uh, times when faithful Christians need to stand fast, and especially faithful pastors uh, are called to stand fast and to face the music, as it were. And it's the hireling that then tries to run away from the wolf. But it isn't an inevitable thing that it is wrong to try and escape persecution. And we need to say these things. I know that maybe they seem a bit remote to us, But once persecution comes, if it comes, you find that in itself it can be a source, even a division among Christians, how to react to situations, how to react, and people react in different ways. And you may know enough of modern church history to know that there are still, even uh, in Eastern Europe, there's still strong feelings between Christians, genuine Christians who reacted in different ways to communist persecution. And therefore we have to remember that there are principles in the word of God. Uh, and one of the principles, of course, is that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And you see, even in that injunction, Christ makes it clear that there is to be a right love for ourselves, a right protection for ourselves, even as we're then to make that the measure of love for our neighbor. Yes, there are times when Christians need to stand fast and to face whatever comes, but there are other times when it is wise to escape. And so we have here Jesus entering into that experience, which today, of course, not necessarily in terms of escaping persecution for the faith, but in terms of just being a refugee, millions today, found in that state. And within weeks or months of his birth, Jesus is a homeless refugee, hunted for his life. It is um, really just an expression of what is fascinatingly mentioned in Revelation chapter 12 
as it picks up on something that's found in the very beginning of the Bible, that the seed of the woman will stamp upon the head of the serpent, uh, but the serpent's seed will also seek to persecute the seed of the woman. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, we have this fascinating glimpse of what is going to happen when the first advent comes, or what did happen. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And then we leap right to the end of the incarnate ministry of Christ, right to his ascension. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Yes, he was hunted for his life. The dragon was after him in the person of Herod and his soldiers. And from his birth, therefore, Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Here he is in great weakness, Yes, a little baby, but in great vulnerability. And there are no armies of people here, no armies of men to guard him. His life is in danger. And yet we have this amazing manifestation of God's power and protection watching over the young child, over the Christ child, at this very early stage of his life. In the midst of his weakness, God intervenes. And we have, of course, as we've seen, the provision for the family of gifts to sustain them, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we have the interventions through the angel of God. Uh, In verse 13 of Matthew 2, the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt. And then in verse 19, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel appeared and told him to go back to Israel. But when he goes back, he finds that one of the the close family of Herod is reigning over Judea, Archelaus, and God warns Joseph to turn aside and to go into a, a distant region, the region of Galilee. And there he does go to Nazareth. And so God is protecting his son. He sends his angel uh, he, he who sends his angels out even uh, today to be ministers of the, to the heirs of salvation, ministers to him who is the Savior himself. And within that context, we have this statement, this um, reiteration of what's said in Hosea concerning God's protection of Christ, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And in that very statement, we have here a reminder of the amazing combination that goes on in Christ's earthly life between extreme weakness and vulnerability and yet the power of God and the presence of God and the vindication of God which goes on right indeed to his final days on earth when he was crucified in great weakness and it was there in the hands of wicked men who did to them what they wanted and yet at the same time because the whole thing was in the will of God he was 
God's instrument of salvation, crushing the serpent's head, and he was going to be raised in power and glory. And we need to understand that this is true of the Lord Jesus, and it's here reminding us in these words, out of Egypt I called my son. And we need to understand that what is true of Christ is true too, in principle, of his church. As it is with the head, so it is with the body. Uh, Roger made reference to this this morning as he spoke about knowing Christ. And he made reference too to knowing the fellowship of his sufferings. And the Apostle Paul gives us an example. Yes, it is, of course, a much more intense example because he was an apostle, a chief apostle. Uh, But it's an example of what Christians face as they follow Jesus and yet they're protected and upheld. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we have a statement like this, which was incidentally not just Paul being autobiographical, he was also telling the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7 what they can expect in principle. As he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. And he refers to this in other places in this letter, and he refers to it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, as he, he, he recounts to the Corinthians what God said to him. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And right here we have God's strength being made perfect in the weakness and vulnerability of the baby Jesus, of the young child Jesus. His strength in providence, in watching over that child uh, with his holy angels and through his providential arrangements and that place of Egypt, which at that time was a place of safety, albeit perhaps rather fragile safety. Uh, yes, and yet such vulnerability, such weakness, such exposure, exposure we can imagine that the, that the family missed the soldiers or the soldiers missed the family by a mere matter of hours. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we just cannot escape that we are in the same pattern as Christ is. Made like Christ, like Christ we suffer, like Christ we rise. Yes, it of course need not necessarily be physical Uh, weakness and physical suffering and physical persecution, although it can be. 
But of course, the devil is subtle. And there are many ways in which he can get at us and distress us and oppress us and persecute us. Uh, And it's interesting when we come to passages that are important in, in the Bible, in the New Testament, concerning persecution, such as the Beatitudes, uh, and what follows on from those Beatitudes, it's, in, it, it's important to see that the persecution is there expressed very much in terms of what they say about you. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. It's one thing to be beaten up. It's another thing to be falsely called a child abuser or a pedophile or something like that. And what that does to your future prospects, if ever that were to happen in the will of God, if, 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 if that's Satan's lie, just imagine the impact on a life. Just imagine the impact of being falsely accused of a crime of which you never committed, a hate crime, or some dishonesty. Yes, it can come to physical blows. It can come to a dark alley one night, and there are enough people being stabbed to death in certain parts of our country to say that that is not impossible for Christians in the not-too-distant future because they are Christians. And we have to face, face it, as believers, and we have to face it in terms of what's going on for the body of Christ in this world, in this new year, what so many are facing and facing in their loved ones. But what this text reminds us is that we are still cared for, we are still known by God, we are still watched over out of Egypt. I called my son. There is a place of safety, as it were. There's a place that, where God can look after and care for his people. And even care for them by his holy angels. Interestingly, that passage in Ephesians 5 that we often refer to in terms of the relationship between a Christian husband and a Christian wife and how it should be between husband and wife. In Ephesians 5 verses 29 and 30, uh, we can miss, miss the major point there as, as speaking about human marriage. The apostle says, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. Yes, that's where we often go, but look at how the verse continues. Just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And there is consolation. And there is the God of all comfort. And there is a God who is able to comfort and console and save his people when they're pressed beyond measure, burdened beyond measure and above strength. And have the sentence of death in themselves. These are mysterious and yet real areas of Christian experience. And as we think of Jesus going through it here. Or of his family going through it. We are reminded that God is able to look after us. 
And of course, it's so, it's so strange. It's so, biblically, it's incredibly strange that it should be in Egypt that Jesus should be looked after. Egypt, one of the ancient enemies of Israel. Egypt, the place of slavery for God's people in past millennia, in the times of Moses. And we should never presume to tell God how he should look after us and how he should perform his purposes through us. Whatever happens in the future, we have to bow before the mystery of his sovereignty and of his wise ways. How different this is from the kind of vision of evangelicalism and discipleship, which is so often put across these days, which suggests that the Christian life is just one big triumph, outwardly, I mean, and one big marvelous event and celebration all the way to heaven. How different! Right at the start of the ministry of Jesus, that is contradicted. By such a statement as this, out of Egypt I call my son. What is the son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the one who was, as it were, the great high priest over all the priests in the temple? What is he doing down in a place like Egypt? That's not a place for him. Of course it isn't, according to human wisdom. Human wisdom would have him cosseted and coddled, and made much of in the palace and so on. But that's not where God is sending him. God who works through weakness. And he brings his son into this unexpected place, Egypt, in this place that's redolent with memory of slavery and affliction. But there, in that place, he protects him. And you see what God is doing. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh them to scorn. The Lord shall have them in derision. All those who who would uh, crucify and who would um, blaspheme and those who would persecute the Son of God. He's just doing what God always does. He destroys the wisdom of the wise. He brings to nothing the understanding of the foolish, of, of the prudent. He makes foolish the wisdom of this world. He exposes it. He shows it to be folly, utter folly. And therefore, dear friends, the lesson is this. Even us here, we should never presume to dictate to God how he should bring about his purposes in our lives and in the life of this church and of every church. There are mysteries about his ways. There are profound reasons for what he does. And sometimes he takes his people into a, almost a literal Egypt. One thinks of the way in which Martin Luther, in the days of the Reformation, he'd just been at the, car, at the Diet of Worms. He'd just put his life on the line. What was going to protect this man? Well, the answer is that as he was going back home, He was kidnapped, but it was a a fake kidnap, really. Kidnapped by friends and hidden in Wartburg Castle. 
And there he stayed for some considerable time, translating the Bible into German. Hidden in a place of safety like that, in the, pla- in the, in the home of a nobleman. There was a profound reason for it. We cannot understand God's ways. One thinks back to the early 1950s in communist China when all the missionaries were expelled. The CIM, the China Inland missionaries and many other missionaries were expelled. Yes, it was a tremendous loss to the Chinese church and the gain, of course, of churches in the Far East around China and countries around China and then followed on the 1960s Cultural Revolution which was one of the most brutal attacks on the Christian church that's ever taken place. But what happened in all of that? Well the answer is that the church in China has grown and it grew in spite of the persecution. One thinks of the awful persecutions that took place behind the Iron Curtain, uh, post-Second World War, in the days of of, uh, Russian presidents like Brezhnev and Khrushchev. But then come 1989 through to 1991, the revivals of true religion in Eastern Europe were immense. We cannot presume to dictate to God, but all we can say is that in extreme weakness, In extreme vulnerability, he watches over his people, he watches over his church, and he he gives us here a pattern, an example, as he watches over his son, his dear son. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, as he watches over him in Egypt. Now it may be, and I'm not making a prediction, I'm just drawing out a principle here, it may be that someone here more than one, will be metaphorically in Egypt in this new year. I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it may be that we have to go there, that you have to go there. But if God has ordained it, in some sense it will be for you a place of safety. When in weakness, his power is manifested. When although it seems so strange, so unexpected, uh, so counterintuitive, but that's just the place where God is going to watch over you and then fulfill his purposes. And we notice that the text says, out of Egypt, I called my son. He wasn't going to be left there forever. It was a place, yes, of safety for a while. But he was going to be called out of Egypt. The Egypt experience was going to be left behind. And he was going to return to the land of Israel. 